Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today we'll be talking to Pat Ferenga about Freedom and Beyond by John Holt, which Pat recently republished for the first time in 20 years. Pat, welcome to the show. Thanks, Trevor. Pleasure to be here. I interviewed you a couple of years ago to discuss another book by John Holt, Escape from Childhood. For our new listeners, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself as well as who John Holt was. Well, I started work um, after graduate school. I was going to be a teacher, and I wound up working uh, at Holt Associates because they were firing teachers, not hiring teachers back in those days, in the early 80s. And through John, I learned about homeschooling immediately. (laughs) Uh, He had just published the teacher own. Now, John was uh, himself a private school teacher who became a best-selling author with his very first book, but he didn't write his very first book till he was, I believe, in his mid-40s, and because it was based on, you know, I think, over a decade of teaching fifth grade. And the book is called How Children Fail, and it's still in print. It's never been out of print since it first came in. It was rejected by about 10 publishers, so take heart, all you first-time authors. But when it finally did get published, it caused quite a stir because of, you know, the, the plain, uh, clear style that John, John Holt has as a writer and as a thinker. Uh, he was just talking to someone in the field, and I think that's always been his strength. And he talked about the charade of learning in schools and how ridiculous testing is versus, you know, actual experience with the kids to see can, can they answer questions about the book you assigned? Can they actually, you know, write something? <laughs> can they calculate in front of you? John, John moved into uh, How Children Learn. Which uh, and sort of those two books became sort of like the the framework that I feel like his whole uh, life <laughs> expanded around was you know, looking around school, but then looking at kids before they go to school and how they learn to walk, talk, socialize, calculate. It's like, how do they do that on their own with all the noise that's out there? How do they figure out what the words are you know, to use and so on? And that book is going to be celebrating its 50th anniversary um, in August of 2017. And coming out with a new edition, uh, Deborah Meyer wrote the foreword for it, which uh, is wow. quite quite interesting to me and and, and pleasing. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, a lot of people have considered these ideas crazy, and you know, but science and you know, a lot of a lot of uh, research and psychology backs up this idea that children are a lot smarter and capable, a lot more capable than we think. His ideas continue to to influence our conversations, but a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with his name. And, and so how do you uh, make sense of that disconnect? Well, first of all, you know, he died in 1985. So, I mean, most of your listeners now would only know about him either through their own research or, or through some publicity that was associated with my efforts to promote his work or, or somebody else's. I mean, fortunately, you know, the, he has a lot of enthusiasts, not as many as he used to have. I mean, he was – John Holt was so popular in the 1960s and early 70s before he started criticizing colleges and schooling <laughs> the institution itself. 
when he was just criticizing classroom practices and and you know and how schools hold back children's development, he was much more accepted, and he was very um, uh, very popular. There's a, a TV show that's on now. Again, it's been revived called "To Tell the Truth," I think it's mm-hmm. called, where um, you know you got to guess who this person is, like semi-famous person. And John Holt was was you know the famous author that they dragged out, and like you know, three people said, "I am John Holt." No, I'm John. <laughs> and then the, it ends with, will the real John Holt please stand up? And his books were controversial because even then, saying that children learned without being taught just struck people as a crazy idea and was worthy of putting a guy in a talk show. <laughs> it was like, I'll never forget when the first homeschooler, and he wasn't the first, it turns out, but the first homeschooler in our in, in our lifetimes that got in, into a Harvard University, Grant Colfax, and he got in there because he helped his family raise dairy goats, and he wrote about it for 4-H magazines and stuff, and he went as a, as a pre-med student to Harvard. <laughs> but the way the National Enquirer reported it was, goat boy gets into Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's the only way you know, these alternative ideas seem to get any recognition in the media. I wanted to know a little bit more about Holt's background. And so mm-hmm. either as a, a student himself or during his time teaching, uh, what do you think most shaped his views on the purpose of schools? Well, that's a great question because his views changed over time. And he was quite open about it. And, and, and let me give you a couple of examples. When he started off in How Children Fail, he, you know, by his own admission, he was a very conventional private school teacher. They expected him to fail kids and have that high standard, rigorous curriculum, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he worked in, uh, initially in boarding schools and then um, to some very elite private schools in Massachusetts. He, he just got the feeling you know, that that's what school was all about, that we were just kind of failing the kids as teachers because we're holding them back. And then towards the um, – after How Children Learn, when he started to realize that kids learn – where we felt that children really learn more through social interaction and by being around other people of mixed ages in the community – and he started to think along those lines. Uh, it, it, then he, he continued along uh, the critique of school with a book called The Underachieving School. But then he started to, to think about, like, well, schools aren't, aren't really going to change because the problem is how children are, are placed in society. Schools are like, well, as to use this as a metaphor, jails. There are jails for kids, soft jails, as you call them, but jails nonetheless. They had no other place to go. Now, this is where you must be during these hours. And so he started to question that, and that's where Freedom and Beyond comes in because that book serves as his most open statement about why he feels schools are not sufficient for the task that we've given them and what other institutions need to, to be enlisted or created to help solve these problems. Schools will not solve poverty. He was talking about that in 1972. talks about raising the income of a poor man, whether by getting a better job or by guaranteeing him an income, will not improve his material standards of life unless something is also done to make available the things he needs and at prices he can afford. There is ample evidence that the profit or market, market economy cannot do this or does not want to. They amount to the same thing. And then he continues, he says, uh, the reason is simple. Nobody wants to compete for the poor man's buck. 
There is always more and easier money in selling luxuries to the rich than necessities to the poor. The man who has one home and wants another for his vacation can always outbid in the building market the man who has no home at all. To put it another way, in a market economy, money goes where money is. Wealth tends to concentrate. Poverty, on the other hand, tends to spread like a disease. The difference is that diseases sometimes cure themselves. Poverty never does. I mean, for a book about education, you know, all of a sudden, he's opening it up. And this is a discussion that we, I think we really need to have and probably are going to have in the next couple of years. You know, we talk about the purpose of school. Well, now, you know, back in the 80s, we sort of threw up the white flag and said, oh, to make an educated citizenry and said, oh, it's to give people jobs. And so now it became this job thing. Then we hit the limits of how many jobs people with college degrees qualify for and so now or, or can have. And now, like, you know, the, we're competing to be cashiers in bookstores with people with college degrees, you know. And uh, so there, there, there are all these limits. And, and, you know, Holt is talking about that. And, and then he talks about, well, what about, you know, what is the purpose of school then? You know, maybe we need a guaranteed income. Why spend all that money for jobs that don't exist, that no one even, you know, can afford? And here we are doing just that. We have so many college graduates and and some kids went to trade schools and stuff who have debt that they can't pay back or is like so onerous. And and yet their skills are already outmoded or the degrees have proven to be worthless to them. And this was, was being discussed in the early 70s. It, it, it's really fascinating to me how, how, like, so many of the myths uh, or delusions that we had about how technology was going to you know, make things better, or most importantly, or, or put more broadly, how the more we, we spend putting the more time that we put process, children through the process of schooling, you know, starting them at younger ages and letting them out at older ages, you know, this very factory-like idea that the more processing you do to something, the more value you're adding to it. <laughs> You know, and, you know, Holt is questioning, like, there are limits. And then beyond a certain limit, it starts to become destructive. I, I, and what he does in Freedom and Beyond is suddenly view, the, like, what, what the original John Holt, the classroom teacher of, I just want to get this lesson across to the kid, is now suddenly the, the social critic saying, no wonder why the kids don't want to listen to me. You know, there's nothing out there for them. You know, so what if they don't learn, learn to uh, speak proper English? They're never going to get a job that requires it. And they know it. They feel it. They uh, they understand that this math has no value to them because they don't see anyone in their lives or, or feel that they, they will ever need it for any purpose. And this is one of those reasons why John really feels the best way to help people learn things is to put them as close to the source of that learning as possible. I mean, apprenticeships, vocational schools, uh, shadowing. He talks about all these in, 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 in all his books, but in this book in particular – he, he shows how it's all interrelated and how we have to stop this idea of education is just what, what people in, in front of a classroom do. Education is social. It's a whole world. So maybe if like health education and welfare departments all got together and, and as well as uh, some other you know, departments and started to say, well, look, if we improve the material welfare of, of the population, we will also improve their educational levels. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, uh, we know from study after study, and John talks about this in Freedom and Beyond in 1972, that we educate by zip code. The wealthy do the best. The people who can afford to stay in school the longest are the ones who do the best in school. And that was true then, and it's even truer in spades now. 
But yet, we, and we have that evidence. You know, there's evidence all over the place uh, of you know how uh, income inequality cause you know is is just unfair for school quality. Um, there's just no doubt about it. But you know, to this day, there are still people saying that oh, that's nonsense. You know, all we have to do is give people choice. And it's just like John said in that quote I read, just giving them $2,000 in vouchers isn't going to improve them. <laughs> There's no school near them that they could use. What's going on here? You know, let's give them real choices. Let more ordinary people be teachers too. Don't just consider the classroom teacher as, as the only source of information. And he has this whole chapter about reading without schooling towards the end, at the end of the book. And then schools against themselves, which is the last chapter, where it talks about instead of like narrowing who can teach and who can be with children during school hours. We should be expanding it, you know, and schools can be the facilitators for this. And then they could be uh, uh, an, an integral part of, of, uh, of a community uh, that goes beyond the classroom that, you know, and that absolutely enlists the, you know, the community members that want to get involved. And certainly if they're parents of children in the school, they're going to, you know, they have, they have skin in the game, so to speak. So there's, there's a lot of ways that this can be leveraged. But instead, we follow the corporate model. You pay. We take care of it. You just stand off to the side. If you've got a customer complaint, go see customer service. This is a completely different idea about schooling. And, uh, and, and so John's ideas, uh, to get back to your very original question, really did change. <laughs> you know, he went from a conventional school teacher to like s- sort of a social progressive. And then towards the end of his life, uh, when he wrote um, Teach Your Own and Learning All the Time, he, he pretty much said that we don't need schools. <laughs> you know? mm. That we can't, like, look, look, we can actually get past this. And so, you know, in his book, Freedom and Beyond, you, you know, he's taking that first step. In Sharing some of those problems that are outlined in the book, so many of them are problems that we're grappling with today. And mm-hmm. I think that the critique that Holt offers in the book is one that will resonate with a lot of teachers. They feel wholly responsible for the outcomes that children have, but they're so mm-hmm. mindful of factors that are outside of their control. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that can lead to a lot of uh, disillusionment to have this uh, broader social critique that kind of ties everything together and to have it written by someone who spent years in the classroom, I think potentially has a very large audience. Yeah, well, I hope so. Um, it wasn't very popular when it came out. Um, and, and like I said, you know, once John started talking like this, it started to bother you know, people who just, oh, he's kind of you know, gone off the deep end, you know, <laughs> and, and his speaking engagements where he would be speaking like four or five times a month to a university audience or on TV. Just d- disappeared over the over the years. By the time Teach Your Own came out, it, you know it, it was pretty down there. Um, and then th- he was on the Donahue show, and it created a big stir again. Did that give him any pause in continuing to promote such a strong critique of schooling or a strong promotion of homeschooling? You know that John was very interesting that way. You know, if some people would get like really, you know, they, they would feed off that negative energy. You know, and say, okay, I'll show them or something. But when John was convinced of the the truth of his uh, of an idea, and I think you know this started you know when, when he served in the Navy and during World War II, and then in the, the world government uh, movement um, uh, right after World War II, he wanted to prevent the nuclear bomb from being owned by any one you know controlled by any one co- particular country. He became um, 
uh, like an executive director for New York State for that group. He was very, very deeply involved in it. And then, you know, he took his work seriously, whatever he did. And, you know, he, he rode a bike for around Europe for a few months and tried to figure out what to do next. And then his sisters, one of his sisters, suggested that he become a teacher in Colorado. She knew this school. And so, you know, I won't get into the whole story, but he writes about it at length in, in his book called Never Too Late, his musical autobiography. Because, again, that's another important theme that John has in his work and in his life and in his teaching that schools just don't want you to believe. And that is, there's always hope. There's always time to learn. There's always the ability. John you know, always wanted to learn the cello. And people said, oh, no, after a certain age, like your fingers won't you know, be able to do it, blah, 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 blah. But he did it, and he wrote a book about it called Never Too Late. Yeah, he wasn't like you know, Yo-Yo Ma. He wasn't a great cellist, but he loved to play the cello. He loved classical music. And Yo-Yo Ma wrote a beautiful blurb for the book, which is on the back cover. And that's something else, like this idea of sharing our gifts. That's something that um, – it's not – it's so evident in Freedom and Beyond, but this comes out a lot in his later work, uh, particularly in uh, learning, uh, learning All the Time. Um, this idea of school hides that because we, we always have to give the gift school demands, you know, vocabulary list, the book report on Christopher Columbus, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is that, that the school is, is demanding. But you know, this idea that like, oh, you know, I could um, – I, I could excel at poetry or uh, singing or origami or karate or magic, you know, uh, tap dancing. You know, all these things that, that I think about that you know, in my own life and with my family uh, as a homeschooling dad and unschooling father of three daughters who are now young ladies, all those things were vitally important. And all of them were things that, that my daughters did, my wife and I supported. And they wound up becoming the source of so much of their education, you know, because one thing led to another. And and this idea that only what takes place in school, only what's directed, only what's predicted and controlled by the curriculum is worth pursuing. And that we have to spend all our time wheedling and needling the children in the classroom to do those things, you know? I mean, there there are other ways to be with kids. There are other ways to, to learn. And he saw how schools were moving in the opposite direction, and they really have. I mean, just since I started in the business in 1981, there used to be a thing called play recess. That is gone. You know, the kids are lucky that they could eat lunch at noontime. Uh, when, when one of my girls uh, was uh, in middle school, uh, they had her having lunch at 1030 in the morning to accommodate the compressed learning schedule they had. Some of those interests that you mentioned, tap dancing, karate, poetry. I mean, mm-hmm. there are people who make their living that way. Um, but yes. uh, not so many people have a chance to discover an interest or a talent in those areas because a traditional school doesn't really make room for that. And I guess if you think that the purpose of school is to prepare people for a very narrow, traditional kind of work, that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I was going to ask if you thought that Holt focused most of his attention on debating people who have different rationales for school, or uh, was he more concerned with people who, like him, wanted to prepare a citizenry, wanted people to feel self-actualized, but uh, prefer different practices? Well, the answer to that, I, I think, is both. As you said that, uh, asked me the question, I thought of this uh, example that I, I, I'm editing um, all the back issues of Growing Without Schooling with some volunteers, and I came across uh, this uh, comment that John made 
when he was interviewed by the BBC in 1983, I believe. And uh, so it's pretty close to the end of his life. But uh, he talked about how the British prime minister had said on television while he was over there that the purpose of school is to fit round pegs into square holes. <laughs> and John was like... <laughs> Uh, that's not my conception of school at all, and you know. <laughs> and then and he and he did get in debates, and 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 just an interesting aside about about this because again, you know, I I, I do wonder like what would happen if John were alive today with so- social media and the ability for anyone to be an expert and so on. Because towards the end of his life, especially after he came out in favor of homeschooling and and had some very strong statements about school at that point. Um, there were more than a share of professors and, you know, sort of motivational speakers in the education market. I'd say maybe a half dozen contact, because that was John's manager at the time. You know, they contacted uh, Holt Associates to set up debates with John Holt. And John turned every one of them down. He says, I don't know who this person is, and I'm not going to let them use me and my ideas and my name to make a name for themselves. Mm-hmm. If they want to, if they want to, you know, write something and then I have to refute it, then we'll go from there. But just turn these things down unless it's someone that that you know has read my work and and cares about this. That's so much of it now. It's just like people just want to get out there and, and make a name for themselves. It has nothing to do with debating the ideas and and discussing. I mean, certainly. Uh, you know, I don't think Holt has everything right. I don't think even John felt that. You know, and he certainly didn't see some of the changes that that have happened in society. Who could? Mm-hmm. You know, but now the the climate is such that it, that it, it seems like almost impossible to uh, to breach the topic because ideology just just rules. Like everything is um, black and white, and you know, like you're either for the party platform as a Democrat or a Republican, and and that's it. You know, I know John did, was was an independent. I'm an independent, and I do vote more on the issues, you know, than I do b- by any party. And I think that that's another trend that you talked about <laughs> moving forward about you know, this idea that the institutions are more important than the people. It's it's one of those times where you know, again, like partisanship is, I think, dangerous. I mean, I, I wish that that we could just step back and say. How could all this work together? What do we need? What don't we need? What is the purpose of school? What is the purpose of employment? What what, what would be the minimum amount of money people would need to live on? And and you know and and what about healthcare? Why why do so many people go broke? Right? You know, I'm helping people with these, like these GoFund things. You know, really good people who can't pay their medical bills. I mean, what a society that we're, that we're, we're educating our children for. Yeah, and not even, and they're not even aware of it. Yeah, even some some people get through college without being aware of these issues, which really affect their abilities to live once they graduate. I mean, we we mock life skills. You know, it's one of those things that you know they say they teach in, in high school and and so on. But <laughs> again, like if it wasn't a class, but it was taught, like you know, if the the, the kids were the high school students were children's aides, if there there were mothers helpers, if there were candy stripers. They, they would get a, a much better picture of, of, what, of what helping somebody else is all about. And and also the adults would probably get a better picture of what it would be like to have a young person. Around. I think there's a lot of prejudice that young people, particularly teenagers, would get in the way and interfere with the work instead of actually be a benefit for the work. Yeah, but uh, I'm sure we could figure that out if we wanted to. We've, we've talked a little bit earlier about some of the things I really admire about Holt. One, um, he was willing to take on new challenges, even as an adult, learning a musical instrument, something that 
most adults uh, feel like they've missed that opportunity if they right. haven't had a chance. I mean, he's well into uh, middle age by the time he pursued that. And then mm-hmm. uh, another thing we sort of talked about is his thinking evolved over time. Um, he wasn't someone who made some conclusions early on and was determined to stick and defend and promote those right. throughout his right. career. He was willing to to re-engage with those questions and change his views over time, which again, uh, like we we're talking about, isn't necessarily the norm now. And, <laughs> no, uh, not at all. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, then you mentioned that you don't agree with everything. And I think it's likely that Holtley revise some of the things he's written in the 40 years that's passed. What issues jump out to you is, is feeling like not as relevant in 2017 or things that no longer resonate with you or might not resonate with him? Well, I think children's rights is one of those things that, you know, certainly resonated with John and resonates with me, but it's like the third rail to talk about, <laughs> you know, it's just, just become a non-issue in, in, in our society right now, I think. So I, I think that that's one of those big issues for John that's no longer there. You know, he was always a, a he loved technology and gizmos, particularly recording devices. You know, he used to love to record rehearsals of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and stuff and bring them in the next day and play them for us. You know? <laughs> but uh, I, I think that he, you know, he would be a little skeptical about the uses of computers in education and, and technology overall. I'll never forget after uh, John died in 85, I started to study with Ivan Illich and I'll never forget Illich in the late 80s talking about how the world is becoming filled with screens and we're navigating our lives through screens. And I thought that was such an exaggeration, but that's what was, he was a world traveler. I mean, every six months he you know, was either in Bremen, Germany, or in Pennsylvania, uh, Penn State teaching, and then he had all these other side things going on. So he spent a lot of time traveling, and, and when you travel in a lot of airports and bus stations and other travel terminals, there are screens everywhere. And then there's na- and then at that time, the screens were coming into like all the, the checkpoints, you know, with your passports and everything. And, and when I think back that, you know, he noticed that then and felt like compelled. I even wrote about it in several places. You know, and here it is. We're drowning in screens. I don't think my day can go by without me using three or four di- different screens besides my desktop that I'm using right now. Right. I mean, in the in the 90s, I that was it. Just a desktop. And, and that that would be it. maybe the television. Now it's like, you know, the cell phone, the tablet. <laughs> this. I mean, gosh, even my um, uh, refrigerator has like sort of a computer <laughs> interface now. <laughs> a little LED screen. <laughs> What do you think Holt's hopes for children were, either as children or uh, in preparation for adulthood? What did what did he want for them? I think what John what comes through to me in reading John's work and and and, and having known him is most importantly respect, just respect for the their presence, uh, just for them being. Being there, that you know, they're they're children. <laughs> you know, they are more inexperienced than us, so they do require a little more care and attention than um, a fellow than some <laughs> fellow people the same age. But uh, I think that that one of the things that we've really lost is this idea uh, that children are individuals worthy of respect. You know, they're a burden to us. They're an incredible financial issue. 
I mean, John talks about this. Uh, I forget where, but um, and perhaps it was in Teach Your Own, where you know, in the old days, to have many children was considered uh, a good thing, and you bragged about it. You know, I mean, yeah, more hands to work the farm. I guess was was part of the thinking. Nowadays, you know, if someone has a lot of kids, like people look askance at them. You know, mm-hmm. and figure one thing or another about them, and and certainly they think, how can you afford it? I mean, time-wise, you know, I mean, you're talking about the teachers feeling responsible. That's another thing that, that's changed a lot. Parents feeling so responsible. I deal with this all the time in homeschooling and unschooling. Parents feeling so much guilt about whether they're doing enough for their children or, you know, they're not pushing them and should I be pushing them or I am pushing them and maybe I shouldn't be. You know, and, and they rack themselves with, with, with all this doubt. And there's so many opinions about, you know, what they should do. Parents spend a lot of time worrying about how their children are going to turn out, what's going to happen yeah. to them. One, because their own reputation is sort of wrapped up in it. Um, That's we, right. I think we see our children as a reflection of who we are. And so that mm-hmm. makes us try to force them into certain career paths, maybe, or interests. Mm-hmm. And then another thing is this perception that if you haven't checked off certain boxes by the time you graduate from high school or college or whatever, mm-hmm you're out of the house. It's too late for you, you know? And so again, I'm thinking about that story about John Holt learning to play cello in middle age, you know? And if we had more examples of that, I think that that's one thing that could put people's minds uh, more at ease knowing that it doesn't all have to be solved uh, by the time someone's 20 years old. Right. I remember um, when John reviewed the book, The Continuum Concept, which uh, he was a big fan of, really one of his all-time favorite books. In his review of it, he you know, he says that he wishes that the author had just expressed you know, what she hints at, which is this idea that wounds of childhood can be healed by loving, caring people who support the child. He says, and, you know, and John says, but this is true throughout our lives. It's not just true. We have to remember this. You know, so many of the books that he chose for the uh, bookstore catalog and um, movies that he enjoyed seeing and talking about, I realized had had this theme about people changing. You know, it's just like it's always possible to change. And here we have this idea that, you know, it's it, you know, we're immalleable be, uh, beyond a certain age. And, and the age gets ever younger. You yeah. <laughs> As if you know, we know, and, and it's so, and Trevor. It just it just cracks up. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm, I, I just finished doing my taxes, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things I'm looking at are these uh, the investment things, and it says past performance is no guarantee of future results. Well, the same <laughs> thing is true of everything in school, you know. Mm-hmm. But we don't believe that. We think that if you fail something in fifth grade, you're doomed for the rest of your life. I had a couple specific things I wanted to ask you about this book in particular. And okay. so, uh, one, what does Holt mean when he's talking about freedom in school or in society? Yeah, he, he, he starts the book off, you know, discussing that. And, and, you know, basically he's explaining that freedom is not the, the, uh, disappearance of control over somebody else. You know, that, that's what we tend to think of it. Like, oh, I could do whatever I want. John talks about, you know, that freedom causes tensions. Because if I give you freedom, exactly what we're talking about, like with parents and teachers feeling responsible, there's this tension now that's caused, you know, because now I got to trust you. 
yeah. you know, and, by, and vice versa. And this is why John thought it was two books, by the way. He thought the first half of the book was about this whole issue of how adults and children relate and in in these concepts of discipline and choice and freedom. And structure and unstructured situations, and you know, in his view, there there is there is no unstructured situation, you know, and in that in that life has a deep structure, and we have to to accept this, and that freedom causes tension, and we have to accept this. We're never going to get rid of that. In a chapter called "Some Tensions of Freedom," he gives all these examples of teachers discussing the pros and cons of different you know issues in their classroom and you know and and they're exactly <laughs> 45 years later they're the same issues you know about you know messiness and orderly or you know, versus orderliness in the classroom and giving giving kids choice versus not giving them choice how much talking do you allow in the class and john yeah he makes the the, the really good point this isn't going to go away but this is what gets caused when we have freedom so we need to to talk about it allow it experience it and adjust for some classes for some situations more freedom in the sense of letting the kids have more choice and and and, and ability to do stuff uh it makes perfect sense but if you're not like that style of teacher john is not saying that that's how you should run your class and i think that's one of the things that that also comes across in this book is he's very very clear is that you should have the right if, if you want to run your 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 school like um, a military school. Okay, you will attract people that want that, and mm-hmm. you know, and there it is. But let's allow other types of school because the military model just is is you know is it you know uh, you know sit down, shut up, and do as I say. We call them alternative schools because the alternative is to treat kids with more respect and stuff, which I find is pretty sad you know mm-hmm. instead we treat, we treat them as army recruits and and you know in fact john even wrote at one point i think it was in escape from childhood school is the army for children <laughs> it, it sounds like he wanted people thinking mm-hmm. about what their experiences were like in school why they became teachers what they thought their job was and mm-hmm. to have those things in the front of their mind and to be able to defend their choices so Let's say that you're a teacher who, who wants to show more respect for children. And so you're under the impression you need to give them more freedom. Uh, let them mm-hmm. choose what they study, when they study, how much they're allowed to talk in class, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you find that it, it makes them less productive in your eyes or it makes mm-hmm. you more uncomfortable. And so mm-hmm. those tensions sort of come to the surface. How might mm-hmm. Holt advise a teacher in navigating that, that tension? Mm-hmm. He actually talks about that very example in this book. It, it's really interesting, you know, because in his own experience, this happened too. I mean, he was often fired from his teaching positions in private schools before he became John Holt, the famous educator. This is when he was John Holt, the private school teacher. And he was often fired because uh, he bought in musical instruments, typewriters, inexpensive biofeedback machines so the kids could, you know, receive when they were being stressed out and do deep breathing and try to relax. Oh, yeah, he writes about all this and what do I do Monday and some of his other more, more teacher-oriented books. The kids were, were saying how much they enjoyed his classes and the other teachers got jealous and a lot of the parents said that his kids were having too much fun and he got fired from there because the kid, even though he was able to prove before he got fired that their test scores were equal or better 
than anyone else's, despite this crazy technique that it was using of you know, letting the kids have more choices in, in how they did things. And even then, it wasn't anywhere near the sort of choices we're talking about. And that's one of the things that um, John noted early on. This wonderful writer, James Herndon, from, uh, he was a teacher's union representative in San Francisco, too. Very smart and eloquent guy. Wrote about the, the book is called The Way It's Supposed to Be, uh, that John liked, also How to Survive in Your Native Land, two really excellent books about working with inner-city children in an urban school in San, Fr- you know, in San Francisco. One of the things that, that uh, Herndon often you know, noted was that the kids in school dumbed themselves down. And again, like we heard about this with, with reviving Ophelia, that girls do this in, in middle school and high school, but then... It, because he was like a regular guy and he was going out bowling with the teachers union uh, people, he noticed that the kid that couldn't do math problems in his classroom was keeping score for the league in the in the bowling, yeah, in the bowling alley. So he started to think like, what's going on here? You know, and like the the actual environment of the school is is actually like the classroom itself. So when when Herndon gave this freedom experiment, I believe it's in How to Survive Your Native Land, where he talks about it, where he says. So he and his co-teacher said, we're gonna, we brought in all these cool things, books, videos, film strips, whatnot. told the kids, whatever you want to do. And the kid said, do you really mean that, Mr. Herndon? And he said, yes. And you know, the lead kid leaned back and said, well, in that case, we don't want to do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what freedom is. And that got Jim in trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's part of the problem, right? We can't just have kids do nothing. <laughs> you can see where the critique of public schools comes from. Because if you Mm -hmm. need schools that that serve everybody and most of those people want schools to prepare their children for the workforce, you can't afford to let people do anything different. That's right. That's right. And, uh, and, And it's crazy because, you know, I mean, everything I keep reading about what employers are looking for, it tends to be about team, uh, people who could learn, Forget and relearn things. People who are good working in teams, working with other people, using technology to, to stay in touch with, with with teams and people. I mean, this is not like you know what you need four year expensive degrees for. We're not going to see the universities change that. I mean, you know, with these work study programs, it just it just annoys the daylights out of me. Like they add a fifth year to their program because you're you're going to do work. You know, you're going to be like interning or apprenticing for somebody, which you don't get paid for. At some point, there are limits. <laughs> At some point, this is going to break. So, if readers could have just one takeaway from this book, what do you hope that it would be? That the problems of school are much bigger than school itself, and therefore school is inadequate for solving them. And we have to stop looking at school to solve the problems of our children's morals and behavior and, and poverty and health. It's too much responsibility for any institution, any single institution to bear. And that we, we really need, in, in Holt's view, we need to take more personal responsibility for these things, but we also need, and this is what separates him from, and this is why it's hard to say he's a conservative or a liberal, because he's saying, but the state and the, the government should help. <laughs> there should mm-hmm. be a commonwealth. You know, I mean, he makes the point more than once in the book that you know we're all taxpayers. Why do the wealthy get preferential treatment all the time in the tax law? Well, Pat, we, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions. First, what are three other books you might recommend to our listeners if they enjoy Freedom and Beyond or they've enjoyed our conversation today? Well, 
I, I would really recommend Gene Leadloff's Continuum Concept. Um, it, you know, it was one of John's favorite books. It's an anthropological study about uh, an Indian tribe and in, um, like a very primitive, uh, like prehistoric almost Indian tribe and how they, you know, they raise their children. And they're almost constantly being held and, you know, being and as they get older to participate in the rituals and the hunting and the gathering that the tribe does. It, it was very, very important book for John. Um, and another one is Ivan Illich's Deschooling Society. That really blew John's mind. It took him a, a while to get his – as just about anyone who reads anything by Ivan Illich. <laughs> but Deschooling Society, I think, has really withstood the test of time and, and um, is – is really important, and then this is a this is an an odd one, but it's it's really and, and I guess it'd be hard to find now, but it's called the Changing Nature of Man by um, I think it's J R Vanderberg, who's a, a a Dutch psychologist, and he he wrote the book I guess in the early sixties, and what impressed John about it was Vanderberg's presentation of the individual not changing like personality type or um like you know going from child to teen to adult to elderly um and each one of those is a different phase of life but more that like the child is still there but now you know there's a teen wrapped around it and now there's an adult wrapped around that teen and then so he really yeah he was really taken by uh, this idea that our lives are a continuum, like our whole, like everything. And so what does happen to us as a child does matter as an adult. But also, as I said, he always, yeah, and this book brings us out too, that you can change. I mean, other books that John liked uh, on these themes were uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, he was a concentration camp survivor, and you know, he talks about hope and how hope is, you know, even irrational hope was better than no hope at all to to him. And Holt was very taken by that and felt very strongly that, you know, we, we need to give people hope. And schools don't. You know, they tell you, oh, you fail this test in seventh grade, you're never going to amount to anything. We, 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 we put way too much pressure on, on the whole educational process. And now, and now that it's become so expensive and so many of the things that, that John was fearing would happen um, to, to not just uh, children, but to the, to the whole idea of education. Is is that now it's just become a technocratic process for getting a job, and 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 it's kind of even losing its meaning there. I mean, I heard a report today on NPR about uh, TaskRabbit and how like the uh, you know, the gig economy is taking off, and like more and more people are they're going to have to come up with like, new tax forms. Was the point of the story for a new a new form of ten ninety nine for all the people doing all this weird part time work online. Finally, can you tell us a little bit about your next project and how we can follow your work? Well, right now, I'm focusing a lot on getting the Alliance for Self-Directed Education started. It's a group that we hope will promote and make the idea that you know self-directed learning is normative and not alternative. We really want, want to get that message out. And so uh, I'm working with Dr. Peter Gray and several other really top-notch people to try and uh, change the conversation about what we need to teach children in order for them to succeed to how can we enable children to succeed <laughs> on their own terms. And that's, you know, and, and that's an ongoing thing because I'm going to turn 60 soon and I'm thinking my next, pro I, I, I didn't see this project coming up and I'm glad that 
I've got more ideas for more coming <laughs> beyond this, you know, so it's never too late. And I hope that that's uh, a message that people get from this. While things may look, look, look poor for educational change right now, uh, at least in a, in a direction that would help people and, and, you know, protect us from the ravages of just <laughs> being thrown to a, to the market, whatever that means. I, I'm still, still confused by that. <laughs> By by the education market, and when I hear that phrase, but um, I, I think that right now one of the things that Freedom and Beyond gives us is a clear vision of how we got here and what is possible for getting us out of here. Because the same old answers aren't working anymore, and that's why we're at this point of great disruption, and why people are going into debt for uh, college degrees that aren't helping them anymore. And um, colleges themselves are retooling and trying to come up with new majors and new ways of dealing with, you know, the employment situation. And without even questioning, are they really the best places for people to learn all these skills? I certainly think they are for some, but primarily the main thing that schools have been good for is teaching children and graduate students how to become teachers <laughs> the need for education feeds on itself <laughs> so uh, we will definitely follow your other work on self-directed education pat i want to thank you for being on the show today i really enjoyed our conversation me too trevor it was a pleasure speaking with you 